Welcome to Attached, a podcast about the loved ones we're attached to and the good, the bad, and the ugly advice about those relationships that maybe we shouldn't be so attached to. We here at Attached want to share ways to enhance your relationships and debunk all that bad relationship advice using science. Science! Yay, science! Flashback 80s, woohoo! I'm Dr. Patricia Robertson out of the University of Tennessee, y'all. I'm Dr. Jacob Priest from the University of Iowa. And I'm Dr. Sarah Woods out of UT Southwestern in Dallas, Texas. Today we're going to discuss the academic article, Reassessing Parents' Leisure Qualities with Direct Measures of Well-Being. Do children detract from parents' downtime? Also, we're going to talk about some advice that some listeners sent in. I'm really, really excited about um, talking about what they sent in. So thank you for sending it in and keep that goodness coming. Um, But before we get to all that and Jacob's wonderful pop culture, by the way, he's keeping that a secret from us. So I'm not really sure what to expect with that. But, you know, here we come. Um, How are you guys doing? And happy, happy new year. Thank you. Happy new year to you, too. Yeah, I'm doing great. We're kind of under a blanket of snow here in Iowa, and the semester hasn't started yet, so uh, we've just been nesting. Uh, I've changed some light fixtures, we've painted, we're going to be setting up a crib, we're doing all that kind of stuff. It's a little early, but we're still doing it. (laughs) Do it. I mean, you have the time, though, now, so that's nice. Well. And research suggests that babies need new light fixtures, so that's a really good first move. (laughs) (laughs) And Uh the problem with all this, too, is, like, I'm really bad at that kind of stuff, so it takes me forever to do something like this. Like, to change a light fixture, it should probably take what? Like, you know. Five minutes? An hour. Well, maybe an hour at the most, right? Sometimes you have to take all the stuff down, cut up. No. Well, first, we live in a house that was built in 1919, so that oh causes gosh. issues. And then Are, second, Is it haunted? Is your house haunted? Just by cats. <laughs> okay. Just by cats. <laughs> and then second, like, so that causes problems. And then I'm just really bad at this stuff. So, like, to change a light fixture, it could take me, like, four hours. Oh, no. <laughs> and I, like, swear, and I'm frustrated. <laughs> Oh, I should just hire an electrician, but I An actual expert. An an actual expert. Are you getting better each time you do it? Do you feel like you're improving and learning skills? Well, when we first moved into the house, like, we changed a whole bunch of light fixtures because there were some really ugly ones. Yeah. And so I finally got good at it then, but now it's been two years since I've done one, so no, I'm not any better. But the house is looking pretty. It just takes a long time. And and a lot of curse words. (laughs) Yes, a lot of curse words. Babies babies also need cursing, so that's good. <laughs> Get that ready. They need to know what they can't say or shouldn't say, so that's I'm right. here for swearing in front of your kids. Or maybe I should... Yeah, <laughs> yeah no. I was going to say... There's oh, no research careful. to support that, and I'm just kidding. No, definitely. Definitely not. High-conflict homes are not usually, <laughs> usually the best supported. Woods, what's up with you? How's your new year going? Pretty good. We also had snow in Texas, which is very unusual. Uh, we got a bunch of snow yesterday. Um, that is crazy. And I, 
It is. I think we hadn't seen snow that accumulated in any sense in over three years was what I had seen. Really? Um, it's really rare. And it was a lot of it. So we spent yesterday, <laughs> I was able to find one mitten for Charlotte from when she was a toddler <laughs> and one mitten that I don't know how she got it. And thankfully they were the opposite hands. I put her in an old scarf of mine and uh, some boots we got her for Christmas for um, hiking adventures she wants to take. And I was like, you're ready to go. This is exactly what it's like to play in the snow. As somebody from upstate New York, I knew that wasn't true at all. She had no idea. She's like, this is, you're like, this is completely normal. This is how people handle snow. It was, I had to teach her how to make a snowball. And I was like, oh, this is so funny that you don't know these things. But that's because we swim for like eight months of the year. So, you know, trade-offs. Yeah, and she'll know how to swim like like a boss. That's right. She's doing pretty good. Um, well, speaking of weather, it is a wonderful spring day here in Tennessee in the middle of January. It was 70 degrees yesterday, and now it's like mid-60s. It is wild. I put my kid in short sleeves yesterday to go play at the park. I was like, this feels weird. But whatever. They had a good time. Yeah, New Year is going well. The semester has started here at the University of Tennessee. It started last week. So I'm just taking deep breaths and sprinting right on into this semester. Um, New Year's usually come with New New Year's resolutions. Do you guys ever do New Year's resolutions? I just have one. Well, one firm New Year's resolution. Okay. So you know how we have five cats? I do. Well, two of those cats were born under our porch, and the youngest one, who we call Sis, is still pretty feral, even though she's been in our house for more than a year. So my my 2020 New Year's resolution is to pet her. Oh, I was really worried it was going to go somewhere like reduce the number of cats, but I'm glad that that is the New Year's resolution. I can support that. Yeah. I was hoping that that was the resolution. <laughs> so we had the same thought, but different reaction. <laughs> different, different, different uh, reaction. But you in general are cool with New Year's resolutions? Um, I don't really. I feel like if you're going to make a resolution to last a whole year, it's never going to last. So <laughs> like if you're going to change something, it doesn't have to start at the new year. And you shouldn't yeah. expect it to do it for more than like a month. <laughs> if I can do something consistently for a month, I feel like I'm in pretty good shape. Yeah, I completely agree. No matter if that month starts in January or August or whenever. Woods. So he has no faith that my resolutions are going to last for more than another few weeks. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Yes, we tend to have like a conversation at the start of the year as a family about things that have gone well, things that maybe we'd like to change and things that um, we'd like to kind of maybe accomplish or our hopes and dreams for the next year. And um, it works only because Charlotte can get into it, too. And um, so (laughs) I set (laughs) I didn't set a resolution, but I, I was saying that I had a goal for 2020 of like having more fun and uh, doing more like fun activities either with just other adults or as a family kind of being more intentional about planning that. I like that. So I'm really excited about our academic deep dive today. But Jacob said it's only going to last for another few weeks. (laughs) (laughs) I better get it in. (laughs) I'm sorry I I smashed all your hopes and dreams Sarah. (laughs) When I look really sad and bored in March you can remind me how I failed (laughs) failed already. (laughs) Get me back on track. That's funny. I uh, was listening to this podcast the other day, and they were talking about 
Um, I know another podcast, they exist, but, wow. you know, listen. Wow. I know. <laughs> um, but he was saying that New Year's resolutions, if you think about you only, even if you only do it for one month or three months and you do it every year, I mean, that's still uh, potentially a quarter of your life that you're working towards improving yourself. And I thought that was a really great reframe for like failing New Year's resolutions all the time. Yeah, so I like it. It's my new way of thinking about New Year's resolutions. Um, that being said, I didn't create any. <laughs> but the idea is there. If I had one, I wouldn't punish myself if I failed it. Uh, uh-huh. I mean, I have hope again. <laughs> you have hope. I hope for creating them. That's where I'm at right now. <laughs> nice. Nice. Well, let's get started. First up is poppin' culture. We learn about relationships from our friends and our family. But a lot of what we think about love and relationships come from what we see in pop culture. For this first segment, we like to take a moment to highlight events in pop culture that influence people's lives and how we view relationships, whether they're romantic or family relationships or friendships or whatever. Also, you all know that this is ultimately our excuse just to talk about pop culture. Jacob, what do you have for us this week? So, about a week ago, I got a text from my friend Allie, who is, Allie? shout out to Allie, she shout is Allie. a faithful podcast listener. Thank you, Allie. And she said, Jacob, have you seen the show Flirty Dancing? <laughs> and I was like, no. She's like, you're going to love it, and you're going to want to talk about it on the podcast. And... A hundred percent, she is right. So, flirty dancing. Where does it air? What time? Give us. Some yes, I will. I I know many of you thought <laughs> this would be the Bachelor's because the Bachelor aired this past <laughs> Monday. But don't worry, I will re- return to Pilot Pete. But first, one you just as an aside, ever since I started this podcast and you you started talking about the Bachelor, for some reason on my Twitter feed. Bachelor is advertised for me continuously. Somehow the world of social media has somehow figured out that I am adjacent to Bachelor lovers. It just was a little creepy. You're just going to have to, you're going to have to start watching. That might just be the case. That's, um, that's the ultimate. That's the only answer. So Flirty Dancing airs on Fox. I don't know what time because we just watched it on Hulu. Yeah, but everyone does. The premise of Flirty Dancing is that a single person comes and they learn two dances. One that they're going to do with one partner and another with another partner. Now the thing is, nobody ever dances together. So they are practicing these dances with other partners, with like professional dancers. Okay. And so they learn them through a whole week and then on Saturday, all they can't talk to each other, they just show up, the music starts, and they start performing this dance. And then, so after they do the first dance, then they have um, their other blind date partner show up and they do another dance with them. And then after uh, the two dances, they have a few days and then they decide who they want to go on a second date with. Okay. So their first date is the flirty dance. Yeah. And it only lasts like three minutes. And can I tell you, no, it is so much fun. You cannot watch these dances without smiling it is so fun so like basically you know you'll have these two people who've never met they're they've been practicing this whole week 
to learn this dance, all of a sudden the music starts, they turn around, and you just see like these big beaming smile, and these two complete strangers start doing this choreographed <laughs> dance in in these public places, and they film it so it looks like a music video, and they just have so much Wait, they're fun. in public places? Yeah, so they're like... So it's not on know, a stage like, or anything? Well, so some of them are, but like one of them, uh, the first one was like, they danced through this fountain, and it was amazing. Like, it was these two people who'd never met who were, like, having so much fun knowing this dance. And what I love about this is this is kind of the antithesis of most reality television, right? Yeah. Most reality television wants you to go there and find the perfect person for you. But what I love about flirty dancing is, first, they are having them work on themselves, right? They're having them get out of their comfort zone. Oh. They're having them learn something new, have to like trust their dance partner so they're learning how to be in a sense vulnerable. Right. And then they're creating a space where two people can interact with each other with not a lot of prejudgment, right? They're going to turn around and they don't have time to say, like, hey, you know, like, tell me about your work. Tell me about this. Right. It you is really just based questions. on the, the way that they connect as they dance. So I like it for that reason that it's really about, first, you've got to work on yourself, your ability to be confident in yourself, to be able to be vulnerable with other people. Learn something new. Yeah, and second, in a lot of work around attachment and other things, they always frame the metaphor as a dance, which I think is really cool because it, in this part, too, you're saying, like, okay, how does this dance work between the two of us? How can we negotiate this? How can we, you know, trust each other when you're doing all these lifts and everything? And what I like about that is it really provides a foundation where on their second date, they can have a discussion about this shared experience, this opportunity they had to work on themselves and then get together and do something new and exciting, which I think is a really great way that people can think not only about starting new relationships, but kind of uh, like in long-term relationships, adding more connection and enthusiasm. Now, like find right. something where you can work on this yourself and then you bring it to your partner and you share it. I really like the idea. Um, Flirty dancing was actually it's originated in the UK, and if you Google UK flirty dancing, uh, there's this really I don't know their names, um, but these two guys who do a dance together and they go on their first date afterwards, and it is magical, like Aww. incredible. Like I started Chelsea and I were watching it. So as we I messaged Ali back and said, "Hey, we love flirty dancing." She's like, "Well, check this one out from the UK," and these two. These two guys just do the most incredible dance in like this menage, like this greenhouse slash menagerie. And you literally cannot watch it without crying because you just see the connection, Aww. the fun, the joy, everything. So and you know how much I sweet. love love. Like that's yeah. fantastic. So go like if you just want a feel good way to help you believe in love again, <laughs> go watch Flirty Dancing. But that also not The Bachelor. Well, yeah. But also take away from it that A, like it's really important if you're looking for a partner, like to focus on getting better, having uh, taking the time to focus on yourself. Right. Because then you're going to be able to be vulnerable and open. And if you're in a long-term relationship, do something to put you out of your comfort zone and you can find a way to conduct, 
connect and know more about your partner that you've been with for a while on different levels. So check out Flirty Dancing and and learn from it. I yeah. love it. That's fantastic. All right. Uh, you've sold me. I'm I'm in. Yeah, I agree, actually. I think for the first time ever, you've sold me, too. <laughs> I love me some flirty dancing. <laughs> well, don't we all? <laughs> now we're going to move to the academic deep dive segment. Today, we're going to focus on leisure, which I, of course, want to pronounce leisure. Leisure time. <laughs> <laughs> for parents, for parents, and discuss a new paper in press in the Journal of Marriage and Family Therapy titled Reassessing Parents' Leisure Quality with Direct Measures of Well-Being. Do Children Detract from Parents' Downtime? This study was done by Dr. Sarah Flood and Ann Meyer at the University of Minnesota and Dr. Kelly Music at Cornell. A link to the article is available in the episode's description. And of course, we'll share it on Twitter, and it'll be on our website, attachpodcast.com. A little bit of background before Sarah takes us off. Although not met very much research has looked at what parents value about parenthood, the studies that have been done suggest parents think it's most important to create shared memories. Creating shared memories, making meaning, and becoming more cohesive as a family often happens in the context of, sh of shared family leisure time. So I'm thinking going on trip, going on vacations, doing different activities with a family. That makes sense to me. Some studies also show that sharing time with family members and leisure activities is enjoyable. Hopefully it is. And related to parents' satisfaction with parenthood. However, there is a little bit of a gender divide, and we've talked about gender divides in the past, so I'm not surprised that there's a gender divide here. Although Americans are experiencing increases in the amount of leisure time they have, they're spending more of that time with their children, and for moms, that experience is often burdened by planning the activities, often catering to what their family members prefer to do. And moms are also more likely to be expected co to continue to do household chores and caregiving work during the leisure time, meaning the dads often experience higher quality leisure time than moms, and their fun is less likely to be interrupted. Prior research has referred to this as contamination and fragmentation. That is, leisure time that is full of chores and childcare and that is interrupted and broken up. However, the researchers who conducted this study we're talking about today suggest that the term contamination assumes the presence of children during leisure time is a negative thing and that we may not necessarily understand how important the length of leisure time is or how interruptions in our relaxation affect that quality. So Sarah, I'm really excited about this paper. I also love that it kind of echoes back to some other research we've talked about before. So can you tell our listeners and me more about what, what Dr. Flood and her colleagues studied and also what they found? Yeah, I agree. I also think it has kind of echoes of other research we've talked about unattached and um, is really kind of more intentional about laying out what the research has found before and also how they're going to explore those assumptions in this study. Um, so they used what's called the American Time Use Survey, mm. um, which is a national data set that um, 
starting in 2010, used a new way of measuring daily activities that people engage in, which before then and in other data sets had been a little bit convoluted so that we were um, assigning general well-being scores and intersecting that with things that people were reporting they had done, but not necessarily the quality of those activities, just kind of assuming that those two things are related. I see. Yeah, that makes sense. So they they started in 2010 this new way of measuring daily activities that they call the day reconstruction method, which combines the usual time diary approach with questions about feelings related to those specific activities. So um, meaning that they asked participants to retrospectively report on one 24-hour period from 4 a.m. the day before oh, until wow. 4 a.m. the day they were interviewed on each type of activity that they did and where they did it, when they did it, with whom they did it, and then three activities they reported on that were five minutes or longer were randomly selected, and participants were then asked how they felt in each of these activities, so how happy they were during them, sad, stressed, how tired they were, and how meaningful they found the activity. So rather than just acting, asking generally, how do you feel? How tired are you? Um, th- these researchers kind of honed it down and said, during this specific event, yes. how yep. did you feel about these things? I understand. So it's, it's yes. a much more exactly. specific measure of emotions. Yes. Yeah, I like that. Yes. A really direct measure. Right. Um, and so these researchers uh, pooled samples from three of these data collections from 2010, 2012, and 2013, resulting in a sample of 5,433 parents, men and women, who were 20 to 55 years old, with kids that were younger than 18 in the home. And across all of that data, uh, that included over 7,000 activities that these participants engaged wow. in during that 24-hour period. Yeah, it's a lot of data. And the the general huge pooled sample before they narrowed it down to parents uh, with young kids with enough data, sufficient data to answer their question was even, was enormous numbers. So it's a, it's a really um, great sample from which these researchers can pull to answer this research question, which I really like. But even still, it's interesting that when you look at the total number of activities and parents, it's really less than two activities that people had experienced. Which would make sense, right? So if the method is asking about three activities at random, right? they need just enough data for each of these participants to be able to include them. That would make right. sense, I think, Yeah. Um, on average. Um, so then to assess contamination, part of what they asked was who was in the room with you during that activity or who accompanied you okay. for that activity. And um, again, contamination and they, is like people bothering your leisure time, basically. Uh, not necessarily bothering. That's the assumption that the prior researchers right. would have made, was that if my kids are there when I am watching TV, that's a nuisance. That's low quality time. Uh, that it's going to be higher quality when I spend it by myself mm. to relax or I spend it with adults only is a presumption that the was previous before. And they're saying, they're asking this kind of more open-ended question about is that really an accurate assumption to be making? So they're saying who's in the room with you or who accompanied you. That contamination is the term used before, but they're saying just who else is involved in these right. leisure activities. That makes sense. And then to assess fragmentation... They looked at how many minutes the leisure activities lasted, how long they are, as well as whether 
two leisure activities occurred with a non-leisure activity in between. So did I watch TV for my first activity? In between, I said that I did maybe some unpaid labor. I did laundry. Right. Uh, or got up to help the kids uh, to make dinner for my children. Yeah. Right. Uh, and then I returned to television. So they would mm. say that that was an interrupted leisure activity by something that was other kinds of non-leisure work. Yeah. So just from a um, being a researcher point of view, mm. that means that they had to go line by line, individual by individual, yeah. and code each of those 5,000 plus um, yes. people. Holy yes. mackerel. That is a yeah. ton of time. That is yes. incredible. And uh, in this full paper, they make reference to many other different analyses they do to make sure that they're correctly answering this question and that there's potentially no other ways to interpret this based on these collections right. of these different variables and the ways that they coded based on what you're describing, which is a ton of work. So they have supplementary uh, tables and stuff that you can download. They've got... Uh, results that are available on request. They've got so much, so much information here. It's really cool. Um, wow. Yeah. So, I mean, if I spent that much time uh, coding this data, I'd be like, what else do you want? Yeah. I get, give it to you all. Right. Please just, please I just take my knowledge, it. please. That's right. That's amazing. Please email me please with your, with me. your criticisms. I can answer any one of them. <laughs> I got um, I've got all of it. Uh, so they defined leisure time as um, television watching was one example. And that was, for their sample, half or more of the activities, uh, which is, I guess, neither good or bad. I think in the next year, we could assume that Jacob's pop culture segment is probably going to contribute to an increase in those numbers <laughs> more television watching. Um, so at least, at least in regards to flirty dancing. Um, then the second kind of leisure activity was socializing and relaxing, which was less than 40%. And then sports, exercise, recreation, which was more men than women. And telephone calls slash household email and personal email, which was more women than men. Which one of those side analyses that I just mentioned was yeah. essentially to pull that out in case people consider that to be more work than leisure. And it didn't change the results. Because um, I, I personally read that and was like... Uh, personal email is not something I do to find relaxing. Um, it's one of the most stressful parts of my life, but okay. Uh, so they, they consider that. They I also, I don't, I'm pretty like, sure there is, there's, personal email is like non-existent to me. Uh, no, isn't that sad? Yeah, right. I just what's, don't. What's household email? I didn't want any part of that. Uh, I'm not answering emails for my whole family. So, so they do later kind of to pull that out just for other ways to look at how they've coded it, but um, and they didn't include other things that people might consider to be leisure or relaxing, like religious practices or volunteering. Mm, um, right. A lot of times uh, they said that researchers also consider that to be work. So because it's convoluted or they didn't also include eating and drinking or sleeping. Um, Listen, they clearly hygiene. did not pull me because we all know that eating would be a leisure <laughs> activity. I love it. They, yeah, they do acknowledge that a lot of people would say that that's important self-care, but, uh, <laughs> but different. Um, so they, they, play, they look at that too, but it doesn't, it doesn't really affect what they found. So they found that in general, all of, across all their participants, um, they reported relatively high levels of happiness and meaning and low levels of sadness and stress during leisure time, which is great. That's, that means in general for their sample, the leisure's 
fairly effective. Right. There's a little bit of a gender divide there. Moms report significantly more sadness, stress, and fatigue in leisure than dads, but um, that's across the whole sample. So more interesting is that moms spend about 20% of their leisure activities with children only, which is as opposed to being alone or with kids and adults or with adults only, which is significantly more than dads, which suggests that mom's leisure time is more contaminated than dads. Right. Dads spend more of their leisure time with adults only. Uh, so, and then even though both parents experience interruptions in about half of the, dif- the leisure activities they reported, moms experienced slightly more leisure episodes that were significantly shorter in duration, so fewer minutes between them and kind of being spread out across time, which suggests moms have greater fragmentation. Mm. So at this point, the researchers kind of pause and point out, which I really like, well, they don't pause. I wasn't like really watching this article by like li- <laughs> lifetime television. Ellipsis. Listen. <laughs> side note. Uh, I mean, it is how I, I do visualize all the research. I read how it would play out, which is, I guess, why, um, why my stuff's in the middle. Listen, I feel like this needs to be a pitch for some sort of network. You know, get at us. We have some ideas. Sarah has some ideas. They pause. They say, now, reader, this is what you need to know. Now, fair reader, wherefore That's art right. thou reading? If you're reading about leisure, if you've made it this far into the paper... <laughs> Prior researchers would say that moms, therefore, have lower quality leisure time because right. they are more, it's more contaminated with those kids and it's broken up uh, over time with more interruptions. But because they used those measures about how the people felt during the activities, they can answer those questions, okay. whereas the other people really probably couldn't. Um, I'm saying that. The researchers didn't say that on my television show in my head. Um, you pop in and, and are like, but they really you? couldn't. That's, that's her words, not ours. Um, so moms and dads both reported significantly more happiness and meaning in the leisure activities they did with children rather than oh. when they did it by themselves. And even cooler is that family time, so leisure activities that were done with both children and adults, most often of which was co-parents, but not all the time, was significantly greater in happiness and had more meaning than when the leisure time was spent alone, with adults only, or with children only, for moms and for dads. Oh. Yeah. That warms my heart. I know. I I feel like I never get to the results section and feel good. <laughs> I felt, it's I always felt like, good. oh, God, we got so much work to do. It's uh, maintaining my role as a therapist in the rest of my life. But, um, but this one was so nice. Moms and dads also reported significantly less sadness during family leisure activities than in time Aww. alone or with adults only. Moms report significantly less stress during family time than with children only, which means when you build in another adult, moms are less stressed. What? <laughs> I mean, you feel like that. My read was like, oh, really? Because sometimes I feel like I'm doing double duty there. <laughs> just, just kidding, husband. Um, but are you? <laughs> but am I? But dads report significantly less stress during leisure time with children only than when they are spending time with adults only, which I is also really important. Kids are not... Kids are not contaminating problematically leisure right. time, um, which I think is really important. And then they look at fragmentation. So moms report significantly less fatigue with leisure episodes that are longer and significantly less meaning when leisure episodes are broken up 
although interrupted leisure uh, was significantly, uh, although slightly associated with greater happiness. So it's, there's a little bit potentially of an effective fragmentation, um, but no effective fragmentation on the quality of leisure for dads. And this was really only broadly when they dove down kind of into the more specific statistics to look at how these measures were associated within events. It really didn't hold up. Oh, interesting. But I can see so, that, though. Like, you're trying to, like, watch a movie, and this may or may not be something that happened over the break. You're really trying desperately to get through The Witcher, and, like, the kids are like, oh, I need something to color. And you're like, no, that's cool, of course. Let me pause this bathtub scene. <laughs> um, no, I feel it. I mean, I, I understand what, I mean, I can imagine what that feels like. Toss a coin <laughs> to your witcher, oh, valley of plenty, oh, valley of plenty. <laughs> we may or may not have definitely seen that as a attached team. You say, oh, you say we. <laughs> One of us has not, has not watched that show. Well, but listen. I have heard that song now multiple times just in this week alone <laughs> for our listeners. <laughs> <laughs> we also do research together, so we yeah. meet a lot. <laughs> At other times. For, that's part of my leisure time, to be clear. It's not, it's not my paid or unpaid work. It's oh. my leisure time, too. And my social leisure so, time. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I'm a happy person. Which is why we are not—we're not technically researching The Witcher or viewers of that television show. We're just talking about TV. Also, when we're meeting about research, yeah. so it's just really yeah, all we do. Yeah. So there's no evidence. They didn't find any, any evidence, that, which I think is important, that the happiest parents select to spend more time with kids. Which I think is a question that I had. Like, are these oh, just people who are already like, "Oh, my family's so lovely," and yeah. I'm just, my kids are so sweet. Is that a causal? Like, what what direction is that it's, causality in? Yeah, right. And it's so they didn't. There's no evidence for that. Um, and it wasn't also affected by family life cycle factors. So their findings when they um, looked at age of kids, family size, et cetera, something about where they are in their family life cycle, oh, that wasn't, didn't impact their findings either. Um, so they didn't build in overall family relationship quality. That wasn't a measure that was part of the data set, as I understand it. So um, That could be very important, though. Certainly. Oh, absolutely. I think for I think for if you're listening to this, if you've made this far into my visualization of this research, uh, I think that that's really important. Meaning, if a takeaway is for those of you with kids that family time with kids and uh, adults is related to the highest levels of well-being, there's also probably some factor in here about how well your family gets along. Right. Um, to be thinking about that, just building in purely new family time. If you don't get along at other times then that's not necessarily going to be all like joyful and happy and meaningful. Um, but, uh, and then there's no test necessarily of how this quality leisure time translates into other kinds of outcomes for the kids or parents, but um, it's not also what they set out to test. So, uh, but just something that I think would be interesting to kind of look at going forward. Right. Yeah. So that I, I agree that thinking about this ca causally, the direction of causality, so leisure time with your kids may not increase your happiness, like you're saying. It might be that you're happy, so therefore you're experiencing more leisure time with your with your family and kids. It might not be that it automatically is going to increase your happiness, especially depending on that family emotional climate that you know we talk about. Right. That's a really good point, Sarah. Well, th thank you, Patricia. I appreciate it. <laughs> I didn't have that built into my visualization. That makes it much better. Um, I also think I, I mean, just I pop think in take... to your uh, your show and go every once in a while, like Sarah nailing it. 
<laughs> wow. Nice work. You really get. You didn't even skip right to the discussion. Nice job. Nice Look job. at you. <laughs> you guys really get her out? This is amazing. Look at her. She's doing such a great job. No, continue. Go on. Sorry. She's only used three different colors of highlighter. Look at her. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I mean, I say I think I think also because contamination uh, was really not problematic involving kids and adults was beneficial for that kind of time. I think it's also important to think about if that's something that you want to have more of in your life, it's going to probably need to involve setting some boundaries around other things in your life mm. to more intentionally create opportunities oh. for shared leisure time. Right. So they didn't compare it here to the quality of time spent necessarily oh. in unpaid or paid work, et cetera. But in order to find time to be together, to exercise together, to socialize maybe with like friends that have kids or watch watch The Witcher together as a family, um, you ha- I mean, it requires not being at paid work. I just, I just, I I just want to pop family. in. That, I just want to pop in and well, say. Well, your kids are. Yeah, I just want to pop in real Under quick 18? and say that my yeah. six and three-year-old were not, in fact, watching The Witcher okay. with me. I was talking about individual leisure time being fractured by children. <laughs> Um, please don't Sorry. Uh, report Sorry. me to anybody. <laughs> for, listener, for listeners, I, I mean, thank you for clarifying for them. I think also, at the, and the authors point this out, that we probably need some more uh, like work policies and community programs that facilitate families being able to enjoy leisure time together. Yes. Uh, it's, it's not just about setting boundaries. It's also about our cultural priorities around protecting this kind of space and time for families. Yes. Um, which, uh, I mean, they're not talking about um, paid family leave specifically, but um, I can. <laughs> Maybe they're <laughs> talking like around example, paid right? family <laughs> leave because they didn't want to publish a, it. I don't know these people, these researchers, yet. <laughs> in my head, I know them well, but... Um, uh, Are they going to make an I appearance on your they, TV show? <laughs> in, they've already been there. Um, uh, I, don't, I don't know if they research that kind of... Uh, family leave as well. I, I would guess they're like f- they're time use researchers and uh, work. Maybe maybe they are researchers of like work and family general generally. Um, but I think in general, thinking about cultural shifts to prioritize how we protect and respect and promote families can be more intentional. Um, and that's a little bit of what they point out. Um, and then I also a takeaway for me was that because there was limited evidence that fragmentation of these leisure activities affects the quality, I think potentially a takeaway is that there's less pressure to create like these huge, very long, Instagram-worthy family activities that uh, are potentially what stress moms out in the planning oh, and preparation stage. Interesting. Emotional labor. Yeah, that, yes. That like don't, don't, right. Yes, exactly that. That that's that there are potentially. I mean, a lot of this was television or socializing, relaxing. It, it doesn't necessarily need to be like enormous, huge activities. And if it gets interrupted, it's not necessarily going to have a huge effect. So not something to stress about. Right. Um, so when they're talking about family leisure activities, it's not these, you know, epic things that like of people frolicking in fields or or what have you. It's things that exist or is that part of are maybe people a even weekend. doing that on Instagram? Yeah. Is that like a, is, is field frolicking a thing? I don't, I'm just thinking on a picture don't I took. That? Don't you follow that hashtag? Yes. I don't. I I'm definitely gonna look it up for our social media uh, <laughs> promotions. Hashtag field frolicking yeah yeah. 
It sounds like a lot of like lovely, like people who do those lovely family photography sessions, like right before the holidays. I do feel like that involves a lot of field frolicking. Yeah, 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 hundred percent. Um, um, there is a picture of my family my, that hangs in my parents' house that uh, has us all coming out of a cornfield. So we did some field oh, frolicking. Oh my! Oh that my. sounds Instagram worthy. Um, it definitely does. It definitely does. Um, and if it's if it's meaningful and makes you happy, I'm not judging that kind right. of activity. Just that it doesn't maybe need to be that intense. Right. Don't put um, that pressure on yourself. Yeah. And maybe in order to think about what you do find happiest and most meaningful and least tiring and stressful, kind of maybe um, an opportunity to do your own uh, daily diary. Um, and I am not necessarily an advocate of journaling, but this, if we're thinking about in the last 24 hours, what were my activities that I did mm. and how did I feel while I did them? If you do a few of those, it might start to kind of help you find what in your life is stressful and exhausting. And maybe are there opportunities to do a little less of that? Right. And what did you find that contributed happiness and um, meaning and maybe the opportunity to do more of that or to build your kids into it. Right. And and maybe just recognizing that sometimes it really is those tiny things that spark the most joy. Yeah. That's what I took away. I love it. I like this paper. Yeah. I love this paper. Yeah. yeah. And I, what I thought in my reaction to this paper, uh, like I said, I really, really enjoyed it, was in thinking about becoming a father, mm. uh, like the words we use around childhood, it's or having a child seem to be either like this contamination, you know, that like children right. ruin everything and you're never going to have your sense of adulthood back. Or the opposite end is that children are the best thing that'll ever happen to you. And yes. it's the most wonderful thing that'll ever occur. And I think that this points out that really we can pull this back into the middle a little bit. Like, as with all relationships, the relationships you have with your kids are going to be, at least I'm not speaking from experience yet, there's going to be some things that really bring you a lot of joy that are really going to connect you and bond you. And there's going to be things that stress you out. And it and if we bifurcate it into this, either contamination is terrible and bad and kids are going to ruin you know, your, your life forever or kids are the best things that are going to ever happen to you, we're setting people up right. for not realistic expectations about relationships. Absolutely. And in, in reality, what you're saying goes across all relationships, right? No, very few relationships are always are going to exist in those extremes. Most most things are a balance of of good and bad. It's in that in that gray area. Yeah. I had a friend when I was um, before I had my daughter that's said to me that um, and she'd already had two she said to me that people tell you that your whole life is going to change when you have a baby don't believe them it's really just mostly you just start bringing your baby along to the stuff you were already doing <laughs> and it was true. like a super helpful reframe yeah. Stacy shout out to Stacy um, that helped me kind of think about once I had a child uh creative opportunities to kind of either have them join or not even worry about it like that's just the world doesn't always really care about that and um sometimes you need accommodations or extra support for sure but um it doesn't need to kind of necessarily change everything about your life and could um according to this research make your life more enjoyable when you're trying to relax yeah Woo -hoo! boo Woo -hoo! yeah
Yeah. Finally, time for good or bad advice, where we talk about pervasive relationship advice about friends, families, and romantic partners. Did your parents or grandparents have a saying about love and marriage? Did you have a friend or romantic partner who said something about love and family that you thought was odd? Or maybe it kind of struck you as poignant and you said, hmm, fascinating. Maybe you heard something about relationships in a movie or a TV show that made you just think. This is the section of the show where we talk about that advice or th those sayings and based on science decide if it was Good. Good or bad. Wow, people's speakers in their car just blew. That was that uh, was loud. Yeah, I just woke up both of my cats who are sleeping in the office right now. Oh, I'm sure your that's wife how life, is. Super that's how life's happy. gonna change. Well, it's also how life's gonna change. You have a baby. That's one thing. You don't be yelling for this through this podcast all the time. <laughs> If you have been on the receiving end of some relationship advice or heard some great relationship advice you'd like us to talk about, please send it to us. You can leave a message at 865-229-6775, email us at attachpodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at attachpodcast or go to attachpodcast.com and send us a message. While you're at it, please like and subscribe to our podcast and share it with your loved ones. Some of our podcasters have recommended just borrowing your friend or family member's phones and hit subscribe for them. Download a couple of episodes. It's free for them. They'll be so grateful, I'm sure. <laughs> and gratitude, we all know, is good for relationships. So, bonus. Is this kind of like a passive-aggressive way to tell one of your like family members that you're like, you need this? Like, hey, listen. You should listen to this podcast. You can frame it however you want to, Jacob. Fair enough. It can enough. also be thought of doing somebody a favor. <laughs> you're welcome. Tips like these on how to expand our <laughs> listening ship will come each episode. <laughs> Um, so this week we have some bits of um, advice and suggestions from listeners who wrote in. So thank you very much for taking the time to do that. First up is something from Aaron S. Aaron S. said, I watched Set It Up on Netflix the other day, a charming little rom-com about two overwork executive assistants who hatch a plot to set up their bosses and, of course, end up falling in love themselves. First off, Aaron, you clearly um, have captured our voice because I loved reading that out loud. <laughs> One notable line in the movie is from a character who gives a wedding toast with the following words of wisdom. Are you guys ready? Here it goes. You like because and you love despite, i.e. liking a person can be defined as the qualities you share or that you find charming, whereas loving a person is defined by the hurdles you work to overcome and the annoyances you're willing to overlook. I found this idea to be quite touching, but it occurs to me that the sentiment could be interpreted in such a way to mean that love is about withstanding suffering. What do you think? Is this good or bad advice? Mwah! Beautiful, Aaron. Yeah. So I want to kind of anchor this advice into some research. So Love it. Do it. I may have talked about this on the podcast before. I don't remember. But Eli Finkel of the Northwestern University in the Big Ten. Go Big Ten. Um, he has a book <laughs> yep, called... Yep, Go Big Ten. Because <laughs> that's what we do here at Attached. Go SEC. Mm. 
sorry. Um, he has a book called The All or Nothing Marriage. Now, it's been a little while since I've read it, but I so hopefully I don't get too far afield off on here. But uh, in this book, he kind of compares these two different ideas regarding marriage, right? There's people who get married who agree that, who think that marriage should be the place that brings them the ultimate self of happiness and, or as Maslow's hierarchy of needs would say, self-actualization. Like marriage is a place that brings me joy and I should be able to be my best self and this this partner should make me happy, right? That's this liking pit, liking right. bit. He also says that there's these other groups of people that um, view marriage for growth, right? That can go up and down Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So there might be times when a marriage is a place where you can self-actualize, but as you kind of go down Maslow's hierarchy of needs, there's going to be times in a relationship where it's going to be focusing on just surviving, maintaining, because throughout the life course, there's going to be stressful events that can bring you together. Um, and so if you view this as marriage for growth, you're going to have a more stable foundation. So in terms of that, and I would all recommend that you read the book. It's really great. He's got some videos online, too. Um, What's his I name again? Finkel? Eli J. Finkel out of Northwestern University. Just they as all... an aside, I can only now think of Ace Ventura, Finkel, Einhorn, Einhorn, Finkel. Anybody get that reference? No. No. Yes. Moving on. Uh, no. Yes, I don't... no, definitely. But also, I'm I'm interested. Why did you know his middle initial was <laughs> J? Uh, I think that's – I actually follow him on Twitter, I'm pretty sure, and – I think it's Eli J. Finkel is Twitter oh. handle, so. Oh. <laughs> Weird. Okay, sorry. Go on. Um, yeah, well, I've never, I've, I've met him like Sarah has met those researchers from the article she just hey. discussed. They're like hey. in your brain. Like, so in my brain. Anyway. Um, no, perfect. I love it. We're just showing our, our obsession with uh, researchers right now. It's my favorite. So I think in this case, you know, if you're framing love this way about this ability that I'm going to like that a part of love is commitment and to endure difficulty for growth, I think that this is good advice. If, like Aaron says, that it's just about withstanding suffering. Right. In other words, that it's just about, um, you know, oh, this person, we have a really toxic relationship because I've made a commitment to this person because I love this person. I'm going to stick it out. I don't think that is good advice. So if we frame it with Eli J. Finkel, then yes, I could see how this could be good advice. If we're just going with love is about withstanding suffering, right. um, regardless of anything else, then I would say bad advice. So, as always, I'm on the fence. <laughs> what? You must get so tired up there all by yourself. <laughs> Anybody bringing you water? <laughs> I understand. I really appreciate the the listener that sent this in. I appreciate her kind of like new her own nuanced yeah. um, interpretation of it. Kind of sounds a lot like Jacob's do that like on the cuff uh, like off the cuff rather um, it doesn't sound like necessarily bad advice but then also it um, if you listen to it or think about it for long enough then it maybe could be interpreted problematically um, I don't necessarily disagree with that interpretation um, and it reminds me of research 
that highlights the importance of clarifying relationship expectations. So this idea that early on in a relationship, if we like because, then um, we potentially have the possibility of ignoring um, differences or negatives or areas where problems could develop um, and we can focus on what we really like about a person and uh, be really optimistic. And then when we stay in that relationship for longer, the point where we are in love and committed and spending a lot of our life together can be affected by the fact that we never talked about explicitly those things that could create problems and what our expectations were for the roles we would serve in the relationship and the rules we wanted to live by. Um, And so I don't necessarily think it's bad advice. I just agree that if we don't want a relationship where we are solely loving people despite all of their faults, it would be helpful to identify where there are disconnects and there are in all relationships early on. Absolutely. And I just, that, that the saying you like because you love despite is lyrical. It sounds beautiful. It is wonderful in a movie. When I watched this movie for the first time, I was struck by it because it's well-written. It's lyrical. It's a fantastic saying, but I like this idea of diving underneath it and saying, okay, it sounds good. It kind of moves us, but what exactly does it, does it mean? And kind of building off what what you all are saying is that love despite it it definitely could turn um into you know uh, having to 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 kind of endure these these huge challenges but i also like it because not everybody's perfect not every relationship perfect and it kind of hints at that you know this ideal marriage that some people may have or you're you know you're frolicking through a field super happy right or you're flirty dancing with each other all the time that's not the reality of what uh, marriages are there are things that you you work through as a as a married partner as married partners right it's it's not going to always be this perfect shiny relationship and if you think if you interpret this saying as that i I like i like that so in other words you're both on the fence with me is what you're saying what (laughs) (laughs) welcome welcome to the fence there's plenty of room for all of you yeah there is because it's usually just you oh (laughs) she climbs up and offers jacob a glass of water Um, but if you haven't seen this movie, set it up and yeah, you enjoy fun. romantic comedies, meaning you enjoy to laugh and you enjoy romance, I highly recommend it. It's on Netflix. It's yeah, fantastic. Aaron, thank you for, for flagging it for us. We weren't going to find that one otherwise. Thank you. This next bit of advice or recommendation is from Cassandra and she recommended or wanted us to talk more about different types of relationships like sibling relationships. And I would agree and we all agree with Cassandra that we tend to uh, rely a little bit more heavily on romantic relationships. So we will endeavor in this new year to talk about different types of relationships and kind of tickling that future for us. I wanted to talk about sibling relationships and advice about how to encourage sibling relationships. So, so thank did you. you. Just, did you just set a New Year's resolution for the podcast for all of us? I is that did. we're going to expand what relationships we talk about? So we will see if that actually holds throughout the whole year and who is actually right, Sarah or me. 
for the next month, we are going to endeavor. <laughs> um, I did. I didn't even ask you guys' permission. Are you okay with a podcast resolution to expand relationship types? Hey, I feel like our research, the research that we do, says that we should be looking beyond the romantic relationship yeah, consistently. Absolutely. So I would love that to be reflected in the podcast. Done. Okay. So first off, we're going to talk about improving sibling relationships. So this is an article I found online, and it's about sibling relationships kind of from a parenting perspective. So it's about how to encourage good sibling relationships by Catherine Lee. Of course, we will um, post this on the, the Twitters, um, but here we go. Are you all ready? Yes. Okay. So first up, teach them to appreciate their differences. Do you have one child who loves to sit and read quietly and another one who likes nothing better than to play loud games and constant activity? When children have different interests and temperament, conflicts can occur naturally. So you teach them to appreciate their differences. I think that is 100% good advice. <laughs> you know, I would say that also the parents need to think about that, right? Parents have expectations for their kids of what their kids should be doing or what they expect their kids to be doing. But I think that if parents can meet their kids where they're at and appreciate the differences between their kids and support the siblings in seeing those differences and appreciating that, I think that's good not only for within family relationships, but good for kids when they're at places like school, soccer, basketball, hockey teams, whatever, that allow for that, you know, to, to appreciate those differences. Yeah, and I appreciate what you kind of said, Jacob, which was like figure like how to do that because I my initial thought was this is like world peace it sounded like to me right like it was like this very kind of broad statement of course we agree with it but how in the world do we do this and you kind of brought it up starting with the parents the parents need to appreciate the differences in their children and that could percolate down good advice big and broad and basic um, but it reminds me sometimes of this like misguided notion that um, uh, parents or couples or even parents and their extended mm. family, et cetera, shouldn't argue in front of kids. Um, I don't, I don't know that like research doesn't support that that shouldn't happen. Um, high conflict couples or, um, arguments where there's violence or aggression, et cetera, of course should never happen in front of kids, but in general, um, disagreements and things that we're frustrated about with other adults in our lives can and probably should sometimes happen in front of kids so that they have the opportunity to see adults have differences of opinion and different uh, ways of handling that and then also coming back to repair those disagreements in front of kids so that they can see even though we have differences um, we can resolve that and still treat each other with kindness is a modeling that I think adults can do probably with a little more sophistication sometimes in front of I agree. children. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. So how will siblings ever know how to properly resolve their differences, the differences that they have, if they never see a healthy example of what that looks like? Yeah, right. Absolutely. Yep. A healthy repair process. Have them work on chores or a project as a team. One of the ways companies build a sense of teamwork and cooperation among their staff is by having employees engage in exercises and activities that encourage working together. Parents can do something similar with their children, either by having kids work together on projects or by assisting each other with chores. So for me, I think this is good advice, but 
In my head, so one of my colleagues at the University of Iowa is an expert on sibling relationships, uh, Armida Wojcik. So if you want to learn more, check out her work. And actually, Cassandra and Armida used to work together. So I bet Cassandra could weigh in on this too. So Cassandra, join Twitter and tweet at us <laughs> with your ideas and advice. Um, Go Big Ten, go, right? <laughs> go Big Ten. <laughs> yes, go Big Ten. Ooh, why do uh, I feel weird? So I don't know. I don't know of any evidence that shows that having kids work together on a project, you know, increases their relationship. I would assume it does. Yeah, I think most of that research and not is not necessarily in 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 sibling dyads, but maybe in like um, education pedagogy about like teaching kids how to work together in a classroom. I think would be where the the majority of that research would be. And so. I'm not familiar with that research, but I would assume that, again, going back to the first one, like having kids engage in projects is going to use, like force them to kind of work with people who might think different, uh, navigate different types of, of problems, issues, work together. So I think it should be a good thing. But again, I just don't know if there's research to suggest that, that it does. Yeah, and like you're saying, like logically, this makes yeah. sense. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna say it's bad advice. Um, I yes, I'm currently doing some uh, teamwork research and have gotten really familiar with the teamwork literature. And this suggests that the process that is missing about your siblings is that they are interacting and sharing tasks and activities. I don't necessarily need to ask them to be on a team to do something because they already are in a team to do something. They're part of the family together. Whether or not they participate in the same chore, which I really want to have you envision not only one child, but two or more children doing a chore, now the same chore, now somehow working together and making that remotely something that anybody in the family appreciates. (laughs) That is going to to be unpaid work activities that are reported on the Daily Diary as fatiguing and stressful. Because because what the teamwork literature says is important to do is first clarify the roles mm. you're going to serve on a team and the goals that everyone has for what you want to accomplish and then figure out how you're all going to do that together. And then you have to set up a process by which you're going to give each other feedback. And then you're going to intentionally debrief that teamwork process together to talk about what went well, as well as what didn't go well, so that you can redo some of that. And that's the part that probably you could be doing more intentionally with siblings, is talking about whose role and how do these different relationships look like when you're doing an activity together, but also what do we think just went well about that game we just played or how we picked the movie we we're going to watch right. tonight or the, the vacuum we were all going to share um, so that you can just be more um, open about kind of creating a safe climate in your family that helps people connect. Yeah, so I think in thinking about process and giving feedback, I think I know I'm always on the fence because I always know that Sarah's going to go second on the advice and say something much more intelligent than I have to say, (laughs) and it's going to make me regret what I said before. (laughs) That's, this is, oh, that's because you're watching Flirty Dancing and I'm watching research TV in my head, so my New Year's resolution about having more fun, you're right, I've already failed. (laughs) But my feedback sounds good on a podcast. Yeah, hey. 
And I'm just going to join this team together and say thank you all. Um, fantastic. Well, there are a bunch more pieces of advice that we're not going to have time to get to, but we'll post this link on uh, the World Wide Web. All of them. All the World Wide Webs? All of them. All of them. You can find, uh, I know of the many. one, but I know that there are more than that. So thank you all so much for listening to this podcast. Happy New Year. Remember, call us, email us, tweet us about any relationship advice you've received or you've overheard or watched. Overheard? Now I'm assuming our listeners are super creepy listening to other people's uh, table. Anyway, sorry. Um, um, I, I totally do that. I, <laughs> one of my favorite things is to go into restaurants, sit close to people who are like oh, arguing, yeah. and then just be 100%. like, oh shit, uh-huh. did you just hear that? Uh-huh. I love it. Uh-huh. I love it. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. Uh-huh. Cool, 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 cool. So you're like us, simpatico. That's good, that's good, that's good. So, again, um, tweet us about any relationship advice you've received, happened to have overheard uh, by the table sitting next to you, um, and you're wondering whether to follow or pass on it. We cannot wait to talk about it.